Welcome to season two of Bear It All, where we share the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between about biliary atresia. Welcome to the Bear Story Series. In honor of Donate Life Month, Bear will be featuring a month-long story series taking you through several biliary atresia families' journey. Join us every Tuesday and Friday as we share a sampling of just some of the stories. We want these stories to inspire you and fill you with hope. If your child is facing a life-saving liver transplant, please reach out to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. The CODA crew are looking forward to learning more about your family's biliary atresia journey. CODA works with families to lessen the financial burden of a life-saving transplant, and support is provided at absolutely no cost. Please call CODA today at 1-800-366-2682 or go to coda.org forward slash get started to learn more about how they can help. This episode, we talked to Natalie, who is Connor's mom. One thing I love about interviewing families that are in another status or just have a different experience is I've learned so much. Connor, who is a Kasai only, but even though they've had a different experience, Natalie touches on some of the things that I think every parent in the BA community can resonate with, and it's just really inspiring. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Connor's story. My name is Natalie Kleischalt. I'm married to my husband, Jake. We're high school sweethearts, so we're coming up on our 20-year anniversary next year. So we have a lot of life behind us and hopefully a lot of life ahead of us still. And we have two sons, Logan, who was born in 2015, and Connor, who was born in 2018 and kind of turned our world upside down and introduced us to the world of liver disease. So Connor was born in January of 2018. And he was a considerably faster labor than his brother and was born after a couple of pushes and was quite bruised on his face because he was born so fast. And he was a big guy. He was nine pounds, eight ounces, healthy, chubby. Everything looked great on his APGAR scores. Um, you I, know, say, I hear that. I hear that. And I, I feel bad for you. <laughs> I know it was, it was definitely <laughs> quick and intense. And I thought, I'm so glad this didn't last as long as Logan's labor. Yes. This boy is here. <laughs> it was big. Um, so we, I nursed Logan, but it was challenging and I needed to supplement with formula. And so I already had that in my mind for Connor. I'm not going to get hung up on exclusively nursing pumping is really hard for me. I'm going to nurse him and I'm going to give him uh, milk from a bottle and it will be fine. He can have formula and breast milk. So we went home with that sort of plan in place. And I followed up a few times in the first few weeks with a lactation consultant to talk a little bit about, you know, he's, he seems to be latching well, but gosh, he sure seems hungry. So we're doing some bottle feedings. And, you know, got some, some of the same feedback I did with Logan, which was, you just don't seem to produce a lot of milk, but it's great that you're nursing because it's great for bonding and attachment, keep up the good work and bottle feed. So at this time we were living in Seattle and it was a little tricky to get his one month, you know, infant well check at the one month mark. The doctors were busy. It was cold and flu season. 
So the appointment we got was actually exactly at six weeks. It was March 2nd. It was six weeks after he was born. Prior to going to that appointment, probably a week or 10 days prior, I had noticed that he had some yellowing in the whites of his eyes. And I remember asking my husband about it and saying, you know, he was born so quickly and he had so much bruising. Do you think that's still like residual bruising resolving on his face? And maybe that's why, you know, the, the blood that he had in his eyes has finally resolved and now it's kind of yellowing. And he wasn't really sure, but he said, definitely talk to the pediatrician about it. So when I got to the appointment on March 2nd, I was really caught off guard when the pediatrician walked in the room. And the first thing he said was, how long has he been jaundiced? And I thought, I mean, I guess, especially in these fluorescent lights, I can see what you're saying. But, and I told him what I've noticed is the yellowing around the eyes. That is what has been prominent to me. But since you're asking, I guess he's looked like this since he was born or what I can remember of him because he's only six weeks old now and this is his normal. And so he said, we're gonna go ahead and send you for some blood work today. We're ordering it stat. Of course, it's a Friday afternoon. So it's the worst time to be getting new information and knowing you're going to have to wait over the weekend before anything can really happen. The doctor asked a few other questions like stool color, feeding, you know, so, some of those questions you would expect. And we really hadn't noticed anything particularly unusual. And his poop had been lighter than his brother's, but it hadn't been white. And it still had some color. So I didn't really see any red flags. It certainly wasn't a language I was as familiar with as I am now. But at that time, I thought, no, everything's fine. He just has yellow around his eyes. So we did the labs Friday afternoon. And the doctor called that evening to say, you know, we're really concerned. We can't say for certain what it is without an ultrasound. But really, the number one thing I feel like we're going to have to rule out is biliary atresia. And that was the first time we had and, heard that and word. And this is your primary care physician. It is. This right? is our pediatrician. Okay. And actually, it's not even our usual pediatrician because she was out. It was another pediatrician in the office who, you know, had seen him that day and was making the call to say, yeah, we need to look at this closer. So it was his pediatrician who said, you know, something, something seems off. And so he did use the word, could be biliary atresia. We're going to want to get you in first thing Monday morning for an ultrasound so we can look at what's going on. So I can tell you that weekend was one of the longest weekends of our life because there is so much on the internet that is not encouraging, that is not helpful, that is worst of worst case scenario. And we had a lot of data in our brains before we got to the hospital Monday morning at Seattle Children's to do an ultrasound. And none Which of it again was good. is is a blessing and a curse, right? I, I do think that there's benefits to having information going in, but to your point, it's also the worst case scenario and everything. It's very overwhelming. And my husband is a physician assistant. And so for him, he has enough medical knowledge to understand this is really serious where I was a little bit more seeing the things like, well, that baby looks so sick. My baby doesn't look sick. His skin is just a little yellow. Otherwise things are fine. So I had a little bit of that blessing and protection of not fully understanding what all of the big medical words meant. And so we both processed it in our own ways, but he definitely had more of the reality, what this means long-term perspective. And I had more 
or the typical mom, it's my, my kid's going to be different. My kid's going to be fine. It's probably not even biliary atresia. So we did the ultrasound Monday morning and they said, okay, we're going to have you meet with a hepatologist tomorrow. So we went to Seattle Children's to meet with a hepatologist and I didn't know that word before. So that was new. And we met with a sweet um, hepatologist, Dr. Blondette, and she was just so dear. She walked in the room and she was, she was compassionate and very direct based on what we're seeing. I really think it's biliary atresia and here's what that means. And she just really spoke to us in such a kind way and broke down what that means for his body, what, what are the next steps, really was encouraging that many kids live happy lives after they get some of this dealt with. It's not like this is ruining his future, but you know, you've got a six week old in your arms and that's a hard thing to hear. So I remember that was really the first time I cried was at that appointment because it really hit me that they're not saying it might be this. The doctor's sitting right in front of me. She has some hard data and she's saying, yeah, I think that's probably what this is. So it was interesting. That particular appointment with Dr. Blondette was the first time that he had white stool. And he pooped his diaper while we he, were at the He was just waiting. He was just yes, waiting he was for Dr. Blondette. He's like, see, mom, this is, this is what's going on. And I, oh, he needs a change. And she's like, sure, can I look at his stool? Of course. So I, I'm changing his diaper. And I said, now this is not what his stool has looked like. This is very different. And she said, yeah, that's, that's what we would expect to see when they're not getting good bile flow. So that was just one more nail in the coffin of, yes, I think that's what's going on here. So he actually did the liver biopsy on the Wednesday of that week. So March 7th, he had a liver biopsy. And again, yes, we think it's likely that it's biliary atresia. It's likely that he'll need the Kasai procedure. You know, let's get the ball rolling on getting that scheduled. And we now, were really- I have, a, I have a question. Did mm -hmm. you, because my experience, like we didn't get, yeah, they did a biopsy on Hudson's um, before we were diagnosed with BA, um, but it was like during, he had a malrotation surgery mm -hmm. also. And so they were like, oh, we did it, um, a liver biopsy at that point, at that time as well. But like, I never got, I never got the result of that liver biopsy. And I never, like, it never was told to me or communicated to me by the team of doctors that like, that was indicative of BA. And maybe that was just because it was like our, we went so fast, like our journey was so fast. Right. Um, but like, when you guys got the liver um, biopsy and then waited for the results, I mean, like, what was that time, that time frame? I guess. And then like, what, I guess I just, I'm not familiar with like the liver biopsy being the next step of all of, um, of that. I think that people immediately go to like the cholangiogram or the HIDA scan or mm -hmm. something like that. So that's just, and, I'm just curious. So what I remember from that day is that we were pulled in and I think it was Dr. Horseland, but the physician that did the biopsy called us in to talk about what he had seen and just said, you know, we are seeing cirrhosis. That is indicative that things aren't working the way they should. And biliary atresia is a pretty high possibility. And we won't have all the information from what we took out and tested for a while. And honestly, it's such a blur after that, 
that if those results were discussed, it probably would have been during hospitalization for the Kasai. And it is blurring together with a lot of other things. Okay, honestly, that makes me feel better though. <laughs> because yeah, it, was, it wasn't a clear, oh, this is how, how serotid it was, or this is what was going on. It was more, this does seem to line up with the, with the best guess of what's going on. Okay, so it just confirmed like, hey, we do want to go in for this procedure of the Kasai. Right. Like, this would be the next step. Yes, more like it's worth the risk of cutting this kiddo open to do a Kasai because it does seem so likely that it's worth taking that risk next. So that was then, the final testing for him pre-Kasai. Okay, so then what? how many days from when the biopsy was done to the Kasai? It was one week. So it was Wednesday, March 7th was his biopsy and Wednesday, March 14th was his Kasai. And I remember a lot of the research that we had read in that very brief period of time of even knowing the word biliary atresia had to do with the efficacy of the Kasai procedure and how having it done before eight weeks of age had best outcomes. And of course, we're looking at a ticking clock because he didn't get this lab work done at a one month follow up. It was a one month that happened at six weeks. And so we felt all this pressure, like, let's really get this done right now. So I'm sure I drove the hospital schedulers a little bit crazy, calling several times a day, just checking in. Has there been an opening? Do we know? For the record, that's, that's called that's called advocacy. I that is not you bugging. That is called advocacy because I was like, the... I could get a different person. They won't realize I've called 55 times today already. <laughs> what what's the saying? The squeaky wheel gets the oil. It's true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, I think you should pat yourself on the back on that one. <laughs> so I definitely made a lot of those calls, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this done? So we did get a chance to meet with the surgeon just before um, surgery. So Dr. Healy was going to do the Kasai. We met with him, I think the Tuesday before the surgery on Wednesday. And he talked to us a little bit about what the Kasai entails and how long he expects it to take and what we should expect for recovery and all those things just to put them in our pocket and know it looks different for everyone. And it's hard to say how long we'll be in the hospital. And but for the record, like yeah. for anyone who knows, um, so Natalie and I, we both um, are parents of the Seattle children. So, you know, and all these doctors and everything also I, I have experience with Dr. Healy is for people that know him, he's how tall? I mean, oh six, my gosh. six, two, six, three. He is well probably. over six feet. Yeah. Like he's probably six, two, six, three. His and... hair reminds me of uh, the guy from Back to the Future. Yeah, like the but... white, it's just sort of, if he doesn't have his scrub cap on for surgery, it's just wild. <laughs> but he is the most um, intentional, like soft-spoken. So you would think that you, you know, with this, this, you know, just tall, big individual, you would think that, you know, the words that are coming out of his mouth or anything, you know, walking through a procedure like the Kasai and, and going through all that, you think that it would be like, so different than it actually is. Like, he's such, like, he's so intentional with his words. And he's so concise. And he's so, it's just such a gentle voice. It, and it's, he makes it just sound so simple and not easy, but just like, I've done this before. We know what we're getting into. And this is kind of how it's going to go. And you're right. He, he really brought a sense of calm to both of us. My husband and I were, 
we felt like he he knows what he's doing. This isn't his first rodeo. It's going to be okay. So that was a reassuring feeling, but it, he definitely has a larger than life presence. Physically, he takes up a lot of space, but then he talks and it's so gentle. You're right. It's just almost a mismatch. Yeah, he's he's just the friendly giant. Like Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So we went in for the Kasai on March 14th. And the surgery went smoothly. It took six or seven hours as it does. And Connor did well for the procedure and they took out his gallbladder. They took out his appendix. We're already here. Let's get rid of these things that sometimes cause problems. Took care of the Kasai. I remember seeing him post-operatively for the first time. He was already upstairs in his room. And we were really, really fortunate to have a private room that looked out over Seattle towards the West. So we could see beautiful sunsets. It was spring. Trees are just starting to bloom. As we walked upstairs to go to his room and see him, I noticed pies on all the nursing stations. And I was thinking, man, that is not a fast, easy snack for nurses. Like who decided to drop pies off for all the nurses today? And it took several days for me to realize, oh, it was pie day, like the math day. Okay. So that's become a little tradition for us to celebrate his procedure, to have a slice of pie. But that's such a vivid memory, seeing pies on the nursing desks and thinking, guys, that's not grab and go. They're busy. Well, why? So um, hospital stay, we expected to be shorter than it was. He actually was in the hospital for two weeks. And because he had a blood clot in his hepatic portal vein, which they found about, I would say, 48 hours after the surgery and started with blood thinners in the hospital. And then we were discharged with heparin shots for six weeks. So oh, that was- You got you to love that. <laughs> that. That was a very new experience because my husband was still working as an urgent care provider at that time. And so he was gone for long shifts and shift work and different days. And so I had said at the time that we were in the hospital learning about meds, I would be the one responsible for medication because I'm the one who's almost always home. And it's easier for me to fit that into my routine and not feel like we're juggling it back and forth. Whose turn is it to do meds? So learning how to give heparin shots to a seven, eight week old baby felt so intimidating. And I really appreciate it. It's not it's not natural. It's not no, natural no. to have to like, yeah, to, here's my baby that I'm trying to nurture. And now I'm going to give him a shot two or three times a day. That feels yeah, and it's not, and it's not like you could do it gently. Like they say, no. like do a little you bit, really have to do a it. little bit of uh, force. Exactly. So the whole, the whole thing, it just does. It feels so unnatural. Absolutely. And I was fortunate. The nurses that were working with us had me room in for a night before I went home, which was wonderful. And rooming in meant I took care of all the meds. They didn't really come in unless I called for help. And so I had a chance to practice what time he needed medications, giving the, giving the shot myself and just sort of that practice for, okay, we've had a lot of support at the hospital. The nurses have taken care of everything And now we're going home and I have to make sure I can, you know, make the formula and get the balance just right. And, you know, in the midst of between liver biopsy and Kasai, they gave us progestamil and we started on the progestamil because of course he wasn't able to really get the calories he needed and process them from 
nursing or from the store brand formula that we were using that was sort of most kids it's fine for. So progestamil was another piece of that puzzle for nutrition pretty early on. Like that smell will always so bad. It will always haunt me. Like I literally can't, can't eat Asiago cheese because it just reminds me of like gross Asiago cheese. Like it always did. Right. It's a, it is not a pleasant smell. And I was always so thankful that he drank it with no problem because he didn't know better. And he was so (laughs) happy to be getting calories, but yes, terrible. Now where, where was Logan in all of this? So, cause how old was Logan when Connor was born? Yeah, that's a good question. He was, Logan was two years and two months old when Connor was born. And so by this point, he's two years, three months. He's a little guy. My mom and my mother-in-law both flew into Seattle from New Mexico to be with us. And I had a couple of friends in the Seattle area that helped tag team with Logan during the day if both moms wanted to be at the hospital, both grandmas. So for a lot of that support, I have to say having our moms present to be at the house so that either I or my husband or both of us could be at the hospital overnight was a huge blessing because it's hard to leave your baby at all, much less overnight at the hospital. One of us always wanted to be there. And yeah, we've got a two-year-old at home who really misses mom and dad. And so for him, it was almost like a little vacation to have his grandmas and get to do stuff with them. He knew brother was in the hospital and he visited several times. Almost every day he would come by once things were stable and visit. And I would take a break to take Logan to go play on the rooftop and see the playground and walk around and pull him in the wagon and all the great stuff that children's hospitals offer. But yeah, it was a it was an unusual season of gosh, we're really having to lean into being very focused on this baby because he really needs us right now and our two-year-olds having to kind of take second place for a little bit. That's one of the things that like I consider a blessing in terms of, you know, Hudson being our first and only is like we were able to like focus on him. Now, were you were you working during the time? Like so I know that you said that Jake was um working as a um, PA in urgent care, like were, were you working? I was not. So I'd been home with the boys since Logan was born. I had stayed home and we had moved from New Mexico to Seattle when Logan was about six months old. And I think it's one of the the parts of the biliary atresia journey that really I get most choked up about is like, why would we have picked Seattle? Of all the places being New Mexico, born and raised, We were just where we needed to be at just the right time for Connor to get the treatment he needed. And that was such a miracle because some of the stories we've heard from people in New Mexico where it's a really rural state, there isn't a children's hospital, there isn't an adult or pediatric hepatologist in the entire state. You have to go somewhere else if you really want that care. It could have been missed here quite easily. And not only could it have been missed, but by the time they got it, it would have required so much more upheaval to get to a children's hospital for good care. So we were really fortunate to be in Seattle. It's right in our backyard, this awesome hospital that knows what they're doing with liver stuff. And that was a big blessing for us. I mean, that's that's heavy to think about, (laughs) but absolutely. But to your point, it's like you could go ahead and dwell on that or you can focus on that is a blessing. Absolutely. So 
I think that's a great perspective. So we, the other big moving part that was happening during this time, speaking of moving, is that my husband was wanting to switch specialties. Urgent care has long hours, crazy shifts. It's a little tricky being a parent and you're almost never home for dinner because your shift is 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You're gone sometimes before the kiddos are up. You're home after they're in bed. And he had been offered a position in dermatology back in New Mexico to train. And so we thought we were going to be moving in April, early April, mid-April. We had just let our families know we were planning to move back. The ball was rolling. We had things happening right around the time that Connor got his diagnosis and went in for the Kasai. And so a lot of the conversations that we had during that two-week hospital stay were around the idea of do we move to New Mexico where we know there are no resources for us? Or do we turn down that position and stay here because we don't know what the future holds for Connor because biliary atresia often leads to a liver transplant pretty quickly after a Kasai, even if the Kasai works a little bit, it doesn't always work and kids go to transplant pretty quickly. So that was a lot of the conversations we were having in the hospital do we stay? Do we move? And we talked to the job and told them, we really want this job. We feel like God has opened this pathway for a better position for our family, but we need you to wait until the middle of May. We need to get through this six-week post-operative time while we're right here by the resources. And at that point, we will move unless everything is going poorly and then we will just have to decline. And, you know, the job could not have been better. They said, you're the person we want. We're going to hold this position for you. You let us know when you're ready to move. And Gosh. so that took some burden Amazing. off of us because we felt like we need to get through this six week follow-up. There's a lot that can happen in six weeks. And quite frankly, his liver numbers weren't looking great. Even at the time he was discharged from the hospital, he was much more jaundiced post-surgically than he ever was before. And he didn't look really great for a while. Color-wise, um, I would say he finally started to lose the yellow around late April, early May. So he was, a, he was very, very jaundiced. And so yeah, that's like, what, that's like four weeks? Yeah, it was solidly, yeah. yeah, at his six-week visit um, post-surgically, he looked better, but there was still some yellow. It wasn't like some of these procedures I've seen where it's like, oh, they looked really bad. They did the Kasai and they do look a bit better. He kind of went the other way. And I think the clot in his hepatic portal vein probably didn't help that. It may have contributed to it looking a lot worse. And, you know, by the time we discharged from the hospital, he was eight weeks old and he had just, he was barely above his birth weight. He wasn't 10 pounds. So he had not been growing well and had lost some weight in the hospital because there was a lot happening. So the hospital stay was pretty intense and a lot of, um, a lot of vomiting, a lot of vomiting when he would start the progestamil and this continued for him through probably 18 months that sometimes the progestamil, he could tolerate it fine. And sometimes he would take the progestamil and then have what felt like an exorcist level vomit 
spraying across the room and just like it looked so uncomfortable and it was never really clear why you know his stomach a little upset why it happened when it happened we don't know but that's something I don't miss that level of cleanup and intensity post-feeding was hard it was really really hard That's so interesting because I always, you know, any kind of spit up or throw up that Hudson did, I was always like, oh, it's because his liver isn't doing well. Right. Like I just always like, I I never got like a definitive answer, but like Connor was getting better. Right. And he was still throwing up. Interesting. Yes. Yes. It, and I just, I never really knew they didn't, you know, the doctors really didn't know either. It was more over time. He was gaining weight and thriving, but still had some of those periods of vomiting. So we did the six week follow-up in Seattle and the day of the six week follow-up where we met with the hepatologist and the surgeon and the dietitian and the social worker and all the people And we had, they knew our plan. Our plan was we're going to move back to New Mexico and we're going to stay in touch with you guys if he's doing well enough. And they were really pleased with how he was doing. So my husband literally started driving the car with our things packed in it across the country that night. We had packed the week of that six week check-in. And then I stayed another night or two. No no pressure on that um, six week mark. It was such a whirlwind. (laughs) And then um, I spent a night or two in Seattle And my aunt who lives in Tacoma drove the boys and I to the hospital and we flew to Albuquerque and it was scary. Moving is always scary. And there was still a part of me that really doubted whether this is totally the right choice, knowing we were walking into a medical system that didn't have all the resources we needed right at the tip of our fingers, like we had in Seattle. The one thing that I think brought so much peace was that Dr. Horslin, who was one of the hepatologists at Seattle Children's, had a relationship with a physician at Stanford. And he said, I know he goes to New Mexico for a clinic once or twice a month. And so I wonder if it's going to be in the area you're in. And sure enough, it was. So it wasn't a hepatologist. But Dr. Ricardo Castillo is a GI doc who has worked closely with the liver transplant team at the Lucille Salter Packard Children's Hospital in, at Stanford. And so we got connected with him and we had very frequent visits. I think we saw him every week and had labs every week for a good three months after moving because it's that time where things could look good one day and not the next. And you want to catch it as early as you can. So we had very frequent medical visits, very frequent pokes. And Connor, Connor's poor little veins were just so blown out from all of the labs that were taken in the hospital that the best way and like the least stressful way for him was to do scalp draws. For, oh my for gosh, blood. that's my, that is my nightmare. I couldn't I, like, Hudson never had to do it, thank goodness, oh. because, but I like saw people do it. And I was always yeah. like, I don't know. And you know, I think because it was such a good drawing spot for him and it caused such little distress to him, it was easier for me than watching them digging and poking and repoking for veins that were just, they had nothing left to give and they couldn't get a draw. 
But I, I remember thinking, I wonder how long we're going to be doing blood draws through his head. This is, this is crazy. So we did follow up there and, and basically it was pretty uneventful that first year, May, 2018 to December, 2018. We had very regular visits with Dr. Castillo. We felt like he was doing great. He was growing. Um, we got hooked up with early childhood development just to make sure we were keeping an eye on things because we knew if he needed a transplant, he might be in a hospital bed for a long time. It's better to know the team now, even if he doesn't really need it. And he didn't meet criteria based on how he was developing, but he did meet criteria based on his diagnosis. And so we basically had a consult team that for a while came once a month and then came once a quarter until he turned three and just kind of kept him on the radar for if things should change, we already know these people and they know us and we'll be able to get the support we need. So that was great. And we enjoyed working with them. Things were going well. And then suddenly right around Christmas, it always happens at the holidays where it's the hardest time to get anything. I noticed when I went to change his diaper that his size three diaper would not close around his stomach. I couldn't get it on. And I was like, man, he's looking a little distended. Like maybe he's bloated, you know, like the word ascites wasn't quite in my vocabulary clearly yet, but I was concerned. And I went to Target to get a bigger size of diapers because he needed size five diapers to close around his abdomen. And his little belly button was starting to protrude out. And I thought, okay, something's different. So I called his pediatrician, who is in the same medical group as the GI doc who comes in sporadically and said, hey, here's what's going on. We definitely need some help. Something's not right, but I don't quite know what it is. So we went in to see the pediatrician. She said, well, he definitely has ascites. Let's get him on Lasix. And, you know, she consulted with the the GI doc, and they made a plan, started him on spironolactone. And the most challenging thing about that was that the spironolactone, he wasn't old enough to take a pill. Obviously he's 11 months old. The liquid was considered sort of off label for his diagnosis or for that reason for treatment. So getting it through a pharmacy was something like $800 for the month and they didn't have it in stock. It was both, it's expensive and we don't carry it and it's Christmas. So we don't, you're not gonna be able to get it quickly. And we ended up getting it compounded at a local compounding pharmacy, which worked great because we developed a good relationship with them and they started doing all of our compounding for the ursodile and the spironolactone at that time. So the ascites went down, but by the first part of January, it just still seemed like something was off. And at that point, the GI doc was visiting New Mexico and we were able to go meet with him. And it was interesting because the ascites wasn't completely gone. They could see fluid on um, an ultrasound, but his labs looked relatively good. It, there was nothing that was really ringing a a big alarm to say something super wrong with labs, but because it's New Mexico and because it's rural and we're isolated, the doctor said, you know, I do think we should go ahead and do the full workup for a liver transplant because it's better to get it done early before you're in crisis mode, especially since you have to travel. So that is how we got lined up to Seattle Children's for a transplant evaluation the first time. So January of 2019, just a few days after his first birthday, we flew back up to Seattle 
did the whole two-day rigmarole with all the testing and all the imaging and answering all the questions and meeting with all the doctors and all the team. And they were very encouraged with his growth and development. And they weren't really sure what caused the ascites either. It, it was very much a, sometimes this happens, but we're not really sure why, but he otherwise looks good. And so they said, for right now, since you've done the whole evaluation, we will put him as a level seven. So he's on hold on the transplant list when the time comes. Um, and we'll monitor. We'll have you come every six months to check in. If you see something you're worried about in the meantime, let us know. And we felt really good about it because they were pleased with his growth. He was growing. He was starting to walk. He had been close to walking before the ascites. And then it, it was so pronounced, the amount of water that he had, that he couldn't walk. And it took another couple Poor of guy. months because he sort of stepped back a little bit in that. But he did well. So we went again in July of 2019. And they said, yep, let's keep him. Let's keep him as a status seven. He's on hold, but he looks so good. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing the ursodile. Keep doing the spironolactone. Um, you know, let's just keep going and we'll see you in a year or sooner if you have concerns. And so in the meantime, we're still meeting with the doctor here in New Mexico regularly for follow-ups. And the rest of 2019, there were no big hitches. Things were smooth. 2020 started. And of course, there was a big hitch in the universe and COVID. But for us, he was doing fine. We were really pleased with how he was doing. We were cautiously optimistic and tried to remain fairly isolated. We had a small bubble of friends that we saw, but we wanted to be careful knowing that COVID was still such an unknown factor that we weren't sure how it might impact his liver disease. So we, we did kind of keep to our little bubble. We stayed healthy. We pushed our summer 2020 visit back to fall, hoping things would look different around the world. It didn't, but we went September of 2020 back to Seattle Children's. And at that point they said, you know, he's just, he's just too healthy to even be on hold. We cannot justify this healthy, thriving, almost three-year-old on our list. Um, which is great. And so they said, for right now, keep doing what you're doing. Stay in touch with your GI doc in Albuquerque. If you see something concerning, call us. We'll always be happy to see you, talk to you on the phone, but you don't need to plan to come here. And so now, from September. No, so, I mean, one, one question. So if we back up to, you know, the first, the first time that you know, at a year, it's like, Hey, let's actually, um, go and do the workup for the transplant and everything as a parent. I mean, like, I know what my feelings were and my experience was, cause you know, I'd mentally tried to prepare myself for the Casida fail. And I was just kind of always like waiting for those words. And I'm sure that that's like some sort of yeah. you know, defense mechanism and everything. So for you, I mean, what, what went through your head when you get that, like essentially false alarm, right? Where you go and you go up and get this work up and everything. And are you like, walk me through from a mental standpoint, like how did you handle that? I think a lot of what was going on in my mind was we are here primarily because New Mexico doesn't have the resources we need to be able to feel fully comfortable saying, hey, we had a blip on the radar that was ascites. 
but he's otherwise looking good and labs are stable. It was a big enough blip that it required going to experts. And for us, that meant going out of town. There was also a piece of me that, and, and still even sometimes now, is just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, is it, we know that the Kasai doesn't work. It's not a permanent fix. And so it's buying us time. And so at the one year point when they said, hey, we, we do think he needs to be evaluated, I thought it worked for a year. That's great. And there was part of me that thought, you know, he's, he's bigger now, he's stronger now, he will be able to tolerate another surgery much better than if it had been back-to-back Kasai and transplant. So I think I tended to feel more positively inclined, like a lot of stuff has gone right. You know, as far as biliary atresia is concerned, it's not a disease that I wanted to know about or that I wanted my child to have. But in the midst of it all, there's been, um, you know, God's grace and allowing for the right person at the right time to see our kid in a pediatrician's office and say, how long has he been jaundiced? Where somebody else might have noticed it, but also said, oh, you know what? He's primarily breastfed. Let's give it a few more weeks. So there's always been the right thing at the right moment that has allowed me to feel like yeah, I'm not in charge of this. I have no control over what's happening with my kid. And it's an overwhelming feeling and also freeing. Like I'm not the one making him sick and I'm not the one making him better. So I have to trust that the doctors know what they're asking me to do. And that's going to be what he needs to help him to be healthy and to thrive. But I do remember that trip out to Seattle. We're trying to make it fun for the boys because now we've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And we're trying to make it this fun, quote unquote, vacation. And it's kind of hard to put that front on for little people when in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, so do we move back to Seattle? Do I live with my aunt and uncle? Do like, how do we make this happen? Because I can't exactly just sit in New Mexico and wait for a liver if we're urgently needing a liver. It's not close enough. So there were, there were very mixed emotions. There was a lot going on for sure. It's great. Like, I feel like throughout your entire story, I want to say like the theme that I just in hearing your story as you're talking, like I keep going back to like preparedness, preparedness and prevention and all that. And I just feel like you guys have done such an amazing job from from a you know prevention standpoint and taking all these things into account. And I just want to call that out because I think that a lot of people don't have that opportunity or don't really have, aren't in the right space to go ahead and do that. And so I just applaud you guys because like that's everything that you're telling me and that you're going through and doing that. I'm like, oh man, I was not that put together when I was in that phase of our journey. So that was just, just a comment that like, as I'm listening to you, like I'm nodding my head and I'm like, man, good good job, Natalie. (laughs) From one medical mama to another, that means a lot. And you know, it's just, I think it's one of those things where when you're faced with the reality of this is really what this is. And I still want the best for my kid. And I'm willing to do a lot of things to make that happen. So if we're going to be making a trip to Seattle, let's ride the ferry. Let's go play at the playground by the Space Needle. Let's try to make some good memories out of this because this is this is his life. We don't get a do-over. This is it. And as much as I wish hospital visits and blood draws were part of his life, it is. And we talk about that a lot. And we talk about 
how fortunate our family has been that our story still includes our little guy and that at this point he hasn't needed a liver transplant and we still get to enjoy him every day all 100% rascal five-year-old Connor, you know, wild man. So what was interesting was how quiet things got for a long time. We we were just doing meds, um, just still doing the spironolactone in the ursidile. Life's cruising along. Nothing. 2020 ended quietly. We're not on the list anymore. 2021, he was completely stable. Nothing major happened that was exciting medically. It was the most boring year. It was amazing. We did. That was going to be my next question is like, is boring or uneventful? Is that anxiety inducing? Or were you able to kind of live in that moment? And did you, you know, almost like forget at times? I think it's become a practice of being really grateful for each day. And it is still something that looms heavy in the back of my mind, where if there's a day where I'm like, gosh, is his belly button pointing, like poking out a little bit, or is he standing funny? You know, there's always a little bit of that in the back of my mind that wants to take over. But again, it's like, I have so much joy in seeing him live and thrive. And I know that we're not promised health, any of us, we're not promised that we're going to be healthy and strong and capable. So seeing the days where he is doing well, brings me so much joy. And I try to notice if something seems different, but not dwell on it or overanalyze because I have called his GI doc in 2021. At one point, I remember calling just to say, gosh, something just doesn't feel right. Can we do an ultrasound and some labs and everything looked good. Great. Thank you for bringing him in. Nothing looks too wild. There was a little ascites, but it wasn't super prominent. Definitely weren't visually able to see it. So he was doing well. And 2022 started off strong as well, but his labs were a little bit funky in the spring. So at his usual six month ultrasound and labs, some of the numbers just looked a little off. And, and Connor and Connor is four at this point, right? Yes. Connor okay. had just turned four in January. And again, it was like, I had taken him for the ultrasound where they noticed, you know, the cirrhosis looks a little bit worse. The spleen is quite a bit more enlarged than it has been. We've been talking splenomegaly ever since he was little, but it was like, this is really prominent and maybe concerning that we're seeing more backup in his hepatic system. And so I was a little caught off guard still when I followed up with GI and they said, yeah, we do think he probably needs to be evaluated again because while his labs look pretty good, some of what we're seeing visually in the ultrasound is concerning enough to warrant another look and a team of hepatologists to really look at it. And, you know, we've, we've debated where do we go? It's one of those unusual blessings to have the option of which children's hospital will I choose for my son. It's a privilege that I think a lot of people don't have financially, or they just have to use what's in their backyard because it's there. So we talked a lot about, we love Seattle and we, we love the team there. We know some people there, but it is a big commitment to get there. We really have to fly. Driving is just out of the question with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So we started looking into possibly switching over to Children's Hospital Colorado, which is in the Denver suburbs. And everyone we talked to just gave us a really good sense of peace about it. Like it's kind of a sister hospital to Seattle. All these doctors know each other. You know, you'd be in great hands there. 
And for us, that's a six hour drive. So could we fly and get there in an hour? Yes, but it's also reasonable as a family and financially a little more comfortable to say, okay, we can road trip up and we can get there in one day and stay a few nights and get the testing done. So we did April of 2022, we actually had already planned to go up and visit some friends for Easter. So we extended our trip and stayed a little bit longer in Denver to go through another round of testing. And I remember as a mom, just every time a new provider would walk in to see him, they would go, oh, wait, that's Connor. This is the kid we're doing a liver transplant evaluation on. And I would say, thank you. I'm not crazy. I think he looks really good. And I know that doesn't tell the whole story. So I want to be cautious not to put too much weight into his color is good. He's growing. He looks healthy. I understand that might not tell us everything, but they agreed with us that, you know, yeah, he's got splenomegaly. Yes. His liver definitely has cirrhosis. Will he probably need a transplant someday? Yeah, but it's still not now. And so that transplant evaluation was another two full days with all the stuff and was not, did not end in a listing. And part of the reason that we have really liked Seattle Children's and Children's Hospital Colorado and have considered those sort of our top two in the long run are that they really advocate for a living donation option which is important to us because we have watched kids wait for a long time for a liver. We have watched kids who didn't get the liver they needed before they were too sick to really have the surgery. And so it feels like a little piece of what we can say, hey, maybe we find a living donor if it gets to that point and it gives us one more avenue to explore. At this point, Gosh, he's, he's getting ready to start kindergarten this fall. He is so excited to go to school like his big brother. He and his brother are so similarly sized because Logan, who is seven, is a perfectly healthy, active, kind of like a little above average kid for height and weight. And Connor is a over the 99th percentile height and weight kid. So he and his brother share clothes and we I mean, get asked I to be twins. I tell you this. Yeah, say, I... I have told you this before that I'm like, they legitimately look like twins. They do. If you don't sit and have a conversation with them where you can obviously pick up on personality differences and strengths from a seven-year-old versus a five-year-old speech, if you just walk, watch them walk past, you would think they were twins, which is such a miracle because we were told from the time he had his Kasai liver kids tend to be smaller. They have a harder time absorbing nutrients. It doesn't mean he won't be healthy and have a happy life, but they tend to be smaller. And so far, Connor's just beat the odds in size and with stability. We've never had an episode of cholangitis. We've really had no major you know, infections to speak of. Aside from still being on a medication for the ascites, he lives a really typical five-year-old life with a few words that most five-year-olds don't have in their vocabulary. Because if you ask him, <laughs> if he has a diagnosis, he will tell you, I have biliary atresia. My liver doesn't work quite right. And, you know, so I, he's totally, so he's totally aware of, he is. you know, as what's aware going as he on. can be. Yeah, at five. For, exactly. But we've given him the words to talk about it. And we've given his brother the words to talk about it because hospital visits, potentially hospital stays, visits to hospitals and other places that we kind of make a vacation aren't really normal. And so the frequency at which we need to do labs and ultrasounds and all these things, we want both of the boys to know 
You know, it's, it's not what all kids go through, but it is part of Connor's story and it's something he'll always deal with and that's okay. And we can make the best of it and we can say, you know, Oh, it's labs day. That means we're going to go for a donut or, you know, <laughs> yes. we're going to, we're going to go to Denver to do an appointment. So we're going to need the to people, find a fun activity after that. The parents that say bribery isn't a good thing is obviously not a medical parent because it's like, it's so those are the only way that you can get through lab days most times yeah, is yeah. by doing, associating something positive with it. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what? we talk a lot with him about okay. what to expect at his visits. And we tell him, yep, we do think today is going to be a poke day or it's not going to be a poke day. We're just visiting with a pediatrician today and you're not due for any shot. And if he doesn't, he's very clear. He will tell you, I don't like getting labs drawn. I don't want to get poked. And yeah, I don't want you to get poked either, little guy. If there was another way to get the information we needed, we'd do it. But your liver doesn't work quite right. So we've got to have this information to help you stay healthy and strong. Have you had a conversation with him or with Logan about the potential of a liver transplant down the road? We have talked about it because both times that we were sent for transplant evaluation, we tried to explain it in the simplest terms possible. It was easier to explain last year because the boys were four and six, which was an age where we could talk about it a little better. Um, you know, we have a family member who has type one diabetes. And so we talk a little bit about, you know, her pancreas doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And God made her just the way she is, but she needs that special machine on her body to help keep her healthy. And your liver doesn't work quite right. And God made you perfect, but your liver needs some help. And so if we need to, they don't have a machine like they have for diabetes. They would give you either someone else's liver who's still alive, who they take part of their liver and give it to you. Or sometimes people die and their liver is still healthy and strong and they can give it to another person. And so we have talked about it in as simple of terms as possible. And they both know that's something that could happen down the road. I think the hardest question we get is, will he need a transplant? And if so, when? And, you know, the answer is he probably will. And we don't know. It could be this year. It could be in his teenage years. He might be an adult. He might not need one. It's, it's kind of that tightrope that you walk with your kids where, gosh, I'm, I'm praying that he continues to be healthy and thriving and growing but we know that that's a big possibility for him. You know, I think like every, for the longest time, you know, one of the things that you and I have spoken about, Natalie, is I, I have so many questions in terms of how it feels to be a Kasai only versus, you know, like I, I obviously my experience is post-transplant with Hudson, but like everything you're describing to me is, I, I feel like still very similar. I, I would say almost like a parallel to a post-transplant is you know, like you go through, you're like, everything's going really well right now. And just making that decision to live in the moment versus there will probably be a complication down the road. Or in your case, like if there, if Connor goes, you know, towards transplant and everything. So I think the message is that part of the BA journey that we all go through is this constant game living in the moment and being able to, I think that you said this earlier, really eloquently, you know, practice gratitude, 
And because it really is exactly that you have to practice it and then, but also being prepared for what the future holds. And I can tell you some days are easier to balance that than others. And it's just really interesting. I, I kind of make that commentary because I've always wanted to pick your brain um, and you and I are good friends and you know, you've been very gracious in coming on here and talking, but um, you know, as you explain it and everything, I just feel like, I don't know if that goes away, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is regardless of what milestone we're in, the constant balance of should I be worried versus should I live in the present always exists. Absolutely. And I think you said it well, it is in some ways a parallel journey. You're still dealing with the same disease. You're just maybe at a different stop in the road on the process. And the likelihood is we'll be a transplant at some point. But right now, our worries might look a little bit different, but it's still the same kind of every mom wants the best for their kid and you're keeping an eye on things while also still trying to enjoy your day to day. Is there, I mean, I have to ask before, you know, we wrap it up is being in the status of, you know, uh, your native liver, you know, Connor's native liver or being a Kasai. I mean, is there like, do you ever get that limbo feeling? You know, I struggle with it sometimes. I think it's gotten easier now that he's so much older because I've probably had more practice with it, but I think the heartbreak of seeing the kiddos who are waiting, 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 waiting for that liver when they're so little that there's fewer options available to them. And also seeing some kids that just didn't get the transplant in time or just it didn't work out for them. I think even if I feel a little bit in limbo, I'm so grateful for what we have and where we're at that it's hard to feel bad about it. Like it is kind of that in between you know, no, we're, we're not really pre-transplant exactly because we're not waiting for one right at this moment, even though it might be further down the road, but gosh, I'm just so grateful and I've learned so much and I've met so many wonderful people. And I mean, I wish he wasn't sick, but I wouldn't trade the, the friends that I've made and what I've learned along the way. And just the sense of compassion that it's given our family towards other medical families, whether it's a BA journey or waiting for other types of transplants or, or childhood cancers, being a medical parent is really different. And it gives you a different perspective on some of those day-to-day -day challenges that still happen. Even when your kid is sick, you still have to deal with potty training, still got to deal with temper tantrums. And in some ways it makes those things a little bit easier because you can see the big picture and how frustrating they can be in the moment, but how it's not really, it's not the biggest thing that'll pass. I, I love that. Cause it's true. I totally agree. So now, now that Connor is uh, about to start kindergarten, and everything, what are, uh, what are some of his favorite things? Let's, we'll end on a, a lighter note. Oh my goodness. Connor is on the move almost constantly. He loves to ride his bike. He loves to ride his scooter. He climbs the trees in our backyard and I have to pop my head out and say, okay, that might be a little high. I don't think that branch can support your weight. Let's come down. Um, he loved, we went to the trampoline park this morning. He loves bouncing. He can write his name and he's really proud of like, he can write out his letters and he's ready for kindergarten. Um, and he and his brother love to wrestle and rough house and play imagination games and pretend that they're pirates and go on adventures. And I think seeing their friendship together 
on the moments that are sweet, because there's plenty of moments that are rowdy and crazy. And I feel like I'm breaking up a brawl, but when they're playing together, it's just the sweetest thing to see. And it just, it feels really special. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for just being open to talking about your journey. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time as we bear it all.